monsters are most dangerous and most real? The Monsters Within. This week, we look at the monster of lust. All right, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Great to have you here. If I've not yet had the chance to meet you in person, my name is Sean. I'm one of the guys who has the opportunity to teach around here. So grateful that you chose to join us this weekend as we continue our series that we're calling Monsters Within. Now, this series is really based on a few different topics that uh, church throughout the history has identified a couple of things that tend to be the things that, that, that steal the good things that God has for us more than anything else. And the church over the history has really uh, labeled these as the seven deadly sins. So this, this series is really designed to walk through each one of these and recognize that you and I have an enemy who wants to take the good things that God has in store for us. But if we understand his tactics, we are better equipped in order to really experience the good things that God has for us. Now, a couple things that we all need to be on the same page about as we launch into this week and really as we take part in this entire series. Here's the first. Uh, when it comes to talking about topics like this, it's very easy to go into the realm of guilt and shame. This series is not designed to bring guilt and shame on anybody. It's actually, again, quite the opposite. It's just to become aware more and more of the tactics of our enemy so that you and I can experience the good things that God has for us. So real quickly, turn to somebody near you and say, this is not about guilt and shame. Not about guilt and shame. All right. Here's the second thing we all need to be on the same page about. The second thing is, is typically you and I, really all people, are really good at judging the sins of other people, while at the same time being really good defense attorneys when it comes to our own stuff. Because really when we pay attention to everybody else's stuff, we don't have to deal with the hard realities within us. And so really when it comes to this series, and maybe particularly this week, here's my request, or maybe my challenge for you, is that you don't take what we talk about and begin to apply it to those that are in your life. Instead, we really take a deep look within. What, God, what, what is God trying to teach me? Uh, what does God have in store for me? And so again, we won't be the judges of other people, but we'll drop the defenses when it comes to ourselves. So really quickly, turn to somebody near you and say, don't be defensive, be receptive. Man, you guys are catching on. This is really good, really good. All right, here's a third thing we all need to be on the same page with each other about. And that is, as we talk about these topics, what we'll recognize is some of these sins, they have a tremendous amount of power. And as we walk through each one of them, you'll discover that some have more power in your lives than other ones do. But, but some of these sins, they have tremendous power in our lives. And they can really grab hold of us in a lot of different ways. But no matter how much power these sins have in our lives, I believe in a God who has more power than any of these sins have. I believe in a God. You can give it up for that. Like, I believe in a God who is more powerful, that this is about gaining wisdom and partnering with God, that by the power of his Holy Spirit, we are not overtaken by the monsters within, but God can overtake the monsters within. That we can experience hope, we can experience healing, we can experience a new start, a new beginning, forgiveness for whatever it is. There is always hope in God, no matter what we've experienced as it relates to these topics. So real quickly, turn to somebody near you and say, our God is a powerful God. Man, you, you gave that one some emphasis. I like that one a lot. Good. 
All right, now that we're all on the same page, we can dive into today's topic. And we're going to address one of these monsters. Typically today, we're going to talk about the monster of lust. Now, what's interesting about lust is lust actually starts with a God-given desire. You see, lust comes from a sexual desire, and, and sexuality is actually something that God created. God thought it up. God had it in mind. And so what's unique about lust when compared to the other seven deadly sins is, is lust is the only one of the seven deadly sins that actually starts from a desire that's from God. Pride does not originate with a desire that starts from God. Envy does not originate from a, from a desire that starts from God. Wrath does not start and originate from a desire that is from God, but lust actually does. Because it's born out of a sexual desire, which is actually from God. And so let's all be on the same page that, that sexuality, sexual desire, is not a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing. I would go as far to say that it's a God thing. That God designed it. He created it so that humans could experience this wonderful, intimate relationship with one another. They could draw us ever close to one another. It's a good thing. It's a God thing. It's a beautiful thing. So much so that there's an entire book of the Bible that's dedicated toward sexuality as, as God designed it. Uh, there's a book in the Bible called Song of Songs, or, or sometimes it's called Song of Solomon. Uh, it is one of those books that's, it's a pretty racy book. It's probably on par with Fifty Shades of Grey. It's kind of that type of book. It's the type of book that if you were to read it to your kids, it would make you blush. We've got some high school students in the room. It's the kind of book, if you, if you read this book to your parents, it would make you blush, right? It, it's, one of those, it's one of those types of books. But it's, it's, it, it's there to highlight the reality that sexuality is a good thing. It's a God thing. He created it. It's supposed to be meaningful, special, fulfilling. Now what lust is, is it takes a good thing and a God thing, and it takes it and misapplies it in a way that God never intended. And so that which was intended to be good and fulfilling and meaningful gets misapplied in such a way that leaves us feeling wrecked and broken and many times incredibly empty. So the question becomes, how do we lean into what God designed in a beautiful way? Experience it the way that he designed it to be experienced so that lust won't steal and kill and destroy the good things that God has for us in our lives. And so for this conversation today, we're going to go to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 39, or if you don't, no worries, we'll put the, the words on the screen and you can follow along as we lean into the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph, if you know his story at all, you know that Joseph was born into a very large family. He was, he was actually his parents' favorite, and his brothers hated him for it. So much so, they actually fake his death. They sell him to these gypsy merchants that are moving through town, and these merchants end up taking Joseph all the way to the country of Egypt, where he's resold to this wealthy guy, this influential guy, this guy by the name of Potiphar. But God was still with Joseph. Even with all the, the horrific things that he experienced, God was with him even in Potiphar's household because Joseph was a man of integrity. He was, a, he was a man who was hardworking. He did what was right, and he earned a lot of trust in Potiphar's household. He had great favor there, so much so that Potiphar ends up putting him in charge of really everything within his household, and that's where we pick up the story. Genesis chapter 39, we're going to start in verse 6. It says this, it says, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. 
And so here's Joseph minding his own business, living out his, his work and his responsibilities that he was entrusted to in Potiphar's household. And all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife walks in and goes, mm, mm, mm. How you doing, right? And she just saw him for what he was. He was this good-looking, ripped young man. Now, there's nothing wrong with being good-looking. It actually reminds me of a, of a story. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were driving to the lake. We were meeting up with some friends at, at a lake house they had. They were kind enough to invite us along for a weekend. And so, you know, typically, you know, lake types of days, I'm dressed in kind of a ridiculous look. I've got some swim trunks on, mismatched T-shirt, stupid looking sandals. I don't think I did my hair that day. You kind of get the picture. And we're, we're on this drive to the lake and this song comes on the radio by John Mayer. And I make this offhanded comment to my wife and I said, I don't understand why women think John Mayer is so good looking. Like it doesn't make sense. I'm not like a great judge whether a guy is good looking or not, but if I were to judge it, I would assume he's not really that good looking. And so uh, I, I, I said that to her, like, is that true? She said, yeah, that's probably true. Buddy plays guitar and sings. I'm like, well, why does that make a difference? She goes, well, you know, if you play guitar and sing, like you instantly go up a few notches on the scale of being good looking. I'm like, how is that possible? And so I decided to push the conversation a little bit further. I said, okay, John Mayer without a guitar, where's he at on a scale? One to 10, how good looking is he? She goes, I don't know, probably a six. I said, okay. John Mayer picks up a guitar and starts singing how good looking is them now? And, and she doesn't even pause. And she goes, oh, he's a 10 without a doubt. I'm like, he goes from 6 to 10? Just because he can play guitar and sing? That's not right. Now, I should have stopped the conversation right there. But I don't have that kind of wisdom at times. And so I decided to push it further. And I said to my wife, okay, where am I at on this scale of 1 to 10? And she took a look at me in my mismatched shorts and shirt, my stupid looking sandals and my hair that hadn't been done that day. And she goes, right now? I'm like, right now, babe, lay, lay it on me. She goes, maybe four? <laughs> Let's just have a moment of silence for this moment. I said, okay, well, I don't play guitar and sing. So I try to think about like any good thing I do in life and I wasn't coming up with a lot. And so it's kind of the conclusion we drew that I top out at like a five or a six, right? And so truthfully, uh, I don't have a lot in common with Joseph. I mean, Joseph is described as this handsome, good-looking, strapping young man, right? Uh, that was altogether different, at least on this particular day, you know, in the, in the car ride. And so what happens is there's nothing wrong with being good-looking. There's nothing wrong with being attractive. There's nothing even wrong with noticing somebody who is attractive. The question becomes what you do in that moment once you discover it. And Potiphar's wife doesn't just look and appreciate the attractiveness of somebody else Instead, she begins to pursue that which was really outside the bounds of the way that things were designed by God. And so this, it actually describes that she began to pursue him lustfully. Well, what does that really mean? What is lust? How do we, how do we even define it? Like the best working definition I know is simply this, that the lust is desiring pleasure without a promise. It's fundamentally what it is. Lust is when I desire pleasure, but I'm not willing to make a promise. You see, when God designed sexual desire, when God designed sexual intimacy, God created it to be experienced 
within the context of a marriage relationship, and here's why. Because God didn't design sex to be a sheer physical experience. Instead, God designed it to be something that included our whole selves. It's a physical experience, but it's also an emotional experience. It's a spiritual experience. You can go as far to say that God designed it to connect two people in a way that almost our souls get connected to one another. It's why the Bible describes it in such a way that, that two people become one flesh. It's designed to bring a committed relationship together in a meaningful, powerful, fulfilling type of way. But when, but when we choose to exercise lust outside of that, what lust says is, I want, I want something from you, but I don't want you. I want to be physically gratified by you, but I don't, I'm not committed to you. And so what ends up happening in this particular context is it's outside of the way that God designed it. And because of that, lust takes us into other places that can leave us feeling empty, feeling broken if the relationship breaks apart, can leave us feeling unfulfilled, not the way that God designed it. It, it makes me think of this. How many of you love campfires? Love to, to experience campfires? I do too. Particularly this time of year, when, it, when the weather starts cooling off, there's just nothing like a good fall campfire. And so, you know, times our family will go out in the backyard, we'll, we'll build a fire in the fire pit. It's a lot of fun. Great conversation happens around a campfire. Uh, you can take some marshmallows and you can roast them over a campfire and make s'mores together as a family. If you have somebody talented in your family, sometimes you can break out a guitar, sing songs around the family, uh, around the fire, and that person becomes instantly better looking in the moment, Right? But I love a campfire. So many good things about a campfire. But I hate a forest fire. I mean, forest fires are damaging. They're just destructive. Maybe you saw the news over the course of the summer. It feels like it's an annual type of thing on the West Coast of the United States where these forest fires just consume hundreds of thousands, if not millions of acres of land, sometimes consuming homes and businesses, sometimes very much taking the lives of people along the way incredibly destructive. Well, what's the difference between a campfire and a forest fire? A boundary. It's the only thing that separates them. If you think about a campfire, the reason we get to enjoy it is because it's experienced within a boundary. It's within a fire pit, or maybe sometimes we put some stones around almost even literally physically creating a boundary. Because in its proper boundary, it is a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. We love it. But when it gets to spread outside of that boundary and becomes uncontrollable, it takes every good thing away from us. In many ways, that's the difference between love and lust. God says, I want you to experience this beautiful, intimate thing that I created in sex. But I want you to do it within the context of a, of a committed, forever type of commitment type of relationship. Uh, God calls it marriage. It's also something that he designed. It's also something that's a tremendous blessing. And those were intended to be created to go together. It's the boundary by which our sexuality can find the greatest fulfillment, the greatest satisfaction, the greatest meaning. But when lust, what lust does is it takes it outside of that boundary. 
And lust takes us into one-night stands. It takes us into extramarital relationships. It takes us to explicit and pornographic websites. It takes us into places that God never intended for that sexual desire to take us. It's in those moments when lust takes us to pleasure without commitment. It leaves us wanting. It leaves us empty. It lacks fulfillment. It leads to devastating brokenness. Talked to someone after the last service that shared with me that he lost everything in his life because of this fire that burned outside of the boundary. Hasn't talked to his kids in years. This conversation becomes so important because if we can experience God's goodness within the boundary he created, we get to experience the goodness he has for us and leave the brokenness behind. And so there's this interplay between love and lust. And so the second piece for us we have to begin to take the step of is we have to be people who are willing to move from lust to love. To move from lust to love. Let's, let's pick up the passage again. Genesis chapter 39, very next verse. So Potiphar's wife is pursuing Joseph. Here's what happens. He says, but Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He's held back nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. I mean, how could I do such a wicked thing? It it would be such a great sin against God. And so what Joseph is doing in the moment is he's very practically living out this principle of moving from lust to love. He's allowing the love to win out. And what he says in the moment is, I love my master. I love Potiphar enough to not take what doesn't belong to me. I love God enough not to operate outside of the way that God designed things. Uh, uh, Joseph is a single guy at the moment. He says, I love not my wife. I love my future wife enough to, 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 to resist in a moment like this. It's a movement from lust to love, building your life on the way that God actually created it to be built. Now, very practically, how do we make this step? The truth is, this step becomes a very challenging step. Because what it really requires of us is when we face lustful thoughts, we face lustful behavior and and, and the challenges that get associated with lust, the challenging step that we will have to take is this, is we have to bring lust into the light. What I mean by that, probably more than any of the other seven deadly sins, lust loves the secret. And sin has this ability to to breed in secrecy. Because there's so much shame that gets attached to lust, it's the very thing that we don't want anybody to know about. If we're struggling with an addiction to pornography, if we started a relationship with somebody who's not our spouse, if, if, if we've journeyed to places physically with someone without a commitment, everything in us wants to hide. The shame tells us, don't let anybody know. But what's amazing is sin loses its power once it's brought into the light. And so if you're somebody who's struggling with explicit websites, would you find that somebody trusted to bring it to the light. If you journey down a path with somebody not your spouse, and maybe it's not yet physical, it's just emotional, would you bring it to somebody that's trustworthy, would, would help you walk through that scenario? Sin loses so much power when it's brought into the light. 
Someone said this to me a long time ago, and I've really hung on to it in my life, and that's this. There's no healing in hiding. It's impossible to heal from a wound that we're not willing to acknowledge that's there. But when I'm willing to come out of hiding, when I'm willing to walk alongside somebody trusted who can help me through whatever it is that I'm finding myself, I can begin to make this journey away from lust and, and, and find myself recommitted to this thing called love. Now, it is a scary thing to do. That's a challenging thing to do. It's far easier to just avoid it and avoid it altogether. It's far easier to live in secret. But the consequences can be devastating. Uh, we were wrestling with this idea as a creative team this week and wanted to create a video to kind of illustrate what it looks like to avoid these things in our journey. Let's take a look at this. It was my day off. This day was my day, and nothing was going to stand in the way. What did I have planned? Absolutely nothing. Just sit on the sofa and relax, and it was going to be glorious. But while I was relaxing, out of the corner of my eye, I saw something. Something terrifying. It looked like a giant spider darting across the wall. It freaked me out. After I got over the initial jolt of adrenaline, I realized what it was. You see, we had a large light fixture that was hanging down from the ceiling. There wasn't a giant spider crawling across the wall at all. There was a tiny little spider that had gotten inside the light. It was that tiny spider that cast such a huge shadow. Now taking this light fixture down and getting the spider out was going to be a big ordeal, so what did I do about it? Nothing. I just went to bed. The next morning, when I woke up, I was shocked by what I saw. The light was filled with the largest, thickest, most disgusting spider web I had ever seen. All night long, that spider was hard at work taking over every last inch of that light fixture. And in the morning, it was almost unrecognizable. Now I had a total mess on my hands, and I had no choice but to deal with this much bigger problem. This isn't just a story about a spider. This is also a story about sin. Isn't that the way that sin works? We often convince ourselves, well, it's not that big and it's not that bad. I'm just going to leave that tiny little sin in that part of my life and maybe it'll just go away on its own. But when we leave sin in our life unchecked, it never just stays there. It grows and grows until before you know it, that web of sin has taken over everything. The Bible tells us, be alert, be on watch. Your enemy, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be firm in your faith and resist him. Maybe you already know there's something in your life you need to run from. The good news is the Bible also says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Maybe there's nothing else I need to say. You might know there's something in your life you need to deal with. Maybe you have a huge mess on your hands, or maybe you've just let something small into your life and you haven't bothered to deal with it. Perhaps now is your chance to deal with it. 
There's no healing in hiding. And it's only when we're courageous enough to address the spider that we can prevent the web from being spun. Now, let me be candid. I recognize that there might be many of us who are here, maybe those of us joining online, that recognize there's already been a web that's spun in our life. And if that's you, I want you to know that all hope is not lost. There is help and there is hope. Uh, we thought about this a little bit as a team, and we wanted to put together just a, 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 a resource guide that maybe would be able to serve anybody and everybody, no matter where you're at in your journey. And so if you were to go to willowcreek.org slash monsterswithin, you'll find resources that we hope that would be hope-filled and helpful no matter what life has thrown your way and no matter what's been going on in your journey. The web can be undone. It can be cleaned out. There is hope. There is healing. There is opportunity. There is a second chance and a new beginning. It may be that God brought you here today so that you could embrace the help and embrace the hope that's ahead. But for many of us, it's not about untangling a web that currently exists. It's making sure that we take care of the spider so that a web never gets spun in our lives. And so what does that really look like? How do we, how do we begin to do that? And the principle I'd, I'd encourage you to really hold on to is this. We have to be people who have a plan for the pressure. We're people who have a plan for the pressure. Again, let me take us back to, to Genesis chapter 39. We, we go back to, to the story of Joseph. Here's what, what happens. It says that she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day. But he refused to sleep with her. And he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came in, grabbed him by the cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. It's, you, you almost get a sense from Joseph that he had a plan for the pressure. Now, truthfully, anytime you try to fight temptation, no matter what the temptation is, I promise you will continue to feel pressure from that temptation. It doesn't just go away, and it certainly doesn't go away easily. And so what you find in Joseph is he had a plan. He made the decision long before the pressure-filled moment. That he had made the decision before the decision. That he, he had a plan. He, he knew what he was going to do. And really the plan typically involves two things. There's, there's a sense of the, uh, 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 that we, we learn to resist certain things. In other words, we keep away, or if the situation demands it, we run away. But those are really the Bible's two uh, action steps for us. We learn to either keep away or we run away. That maybe you and I will find ourselves in, in a vulnerable or compromising situation. And if that happens, we have to be better, we have to be prepared to remove ourselves from the situation at all costs, no matter what that means. It, it, there's too much at stake, and so that it's okay to simply run away. But even long before that moment happens, there's also wisdom in what I would describe in keeping away. And that's where I would encourage you to consider what I would just call boundaries. It's where boundaries come into play. Now let me be really cautious when it comes to a conversation around boundaries. Boundaries are very unique. They're very personal. They're, they're not universal in any way. A boundary that is the right boundary for one person may be the absolute wrong boundary for someone else. And so anytime you try to universally apply a boundary, it gets really legalistic, it gets really messy, and we end up being like telling people to do things that God doesn't intend for us to do. However, boundaries can be incredibly helpful. If I know my personal vulnerabilities, if I know where I'm weak, I can create some self-imposed boundaries 
that keep me from ever being in a pressure-filled moment that I don't trust that I will make the right decision in that moment. The reality is I know that I'm a vulnerable person. I'm susceptible when it comes to temptation. And I don't ever want to get in a pressure-filled moment because I don't like my chances every single time. And so in my life, there are some self-imposed boundaries that I put. Now, let me be candid. The self-imposed boundaries in my life may or may not be the right boundaries for your life. And I can explain a little bit more of that why. But we have to be honest enough with ourselves to know where are our vulnerabilities and what are the appropriate boundaries for my life and for my relationship. Let me share with some of you, uh, let, me, let me share with you some of the boundaries that exist in my life and my relationship with my wife. One of the things that we've decided to do is that we will have zero secrets in our relationship. And so what that means is there's, there's no chance to hide anything because we can't hide anything. And so we share our passwords to everything with each other. We can get in each other's email accounts, social media accounts, uh, phones, whatever it takes. Not that we snoop around in each other. We have a high level of trust. But if there was ever a question or a concern, our lives are an open book to one another. That's a very helpful boundary to us. Now, if I was somebody in an abusive situation, that somebody is using passwords to manipulate and control somebody, that would not be an appropriate boundary to apply to that particular situation. Make some sense? And so you got to know your personal circumstances. Uh, in, in, in my own life, one of the boundaries that we've decided is that I don't spend time one-on-one with a female who's not my spouse. And if I ever find myself in a situation that my occupation as a pastor demands it, I just let people know about it. Somebody knows where I'm at, who I'm with, what the conversation's like. Oftentimes, I'll let my wife know about those types of things. Because for me, if I can bring things into the light, it, 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 it just loses power for any kind of temptation in this particular area. Uh, in our life, we, we've chosen to put a pretty intense internet filter in our home. I got two teenage boys, and uh, one of the things we've determined is is a high value is we want to control the ability to not go to explicit websites within the confines of our home. It's just a boundary that we've created. We use a a service that's called Covenant Eyes. It's actually served us well. And just so you know, with with Covenant Eyes, you can change, you know, levels of filter. Uh, You can change all kinds of things with it, but it's password protected, and I don't even know the password. My wife's the only one that knows that password. Because frankly, I don't want to know. I don't want to have the ability to go and change things and control things. So you kind of get the sense of what I'm describing here, that the boundaries can be really, really helpful. Here's why this matters. Here's an important principle for you. If sin, sin has a harder time taking root if it doesn't have a route. Does that make some sense? Sin has a harder time taking root in my life if I don't give it a route. And that's what boundaries are designed to do, is to to create a a, a scenario for you that sin doesn't have the route in my life. It can't get to me in certain areas. It doesn't, I don't find myself in compromising situations often. Sin has a harder time taking root if it doesn't have a route. And so we have a pressure, uh, we have a plan for the pressure. The other piece I would encourage you to consider is this, is is if I'm trying to overcome lust, or if I'm trying to overcome a sin, you'll never overcome it by focusing on it. I mean, case in point is this, if I were to tell you, don't think about a pink elephant. Like seriously, whatever you do right now, don't think about a pink elephant. What are you thinking about? Me too, that's what I would think about. That, That you don't overcome something typically by focusing on it. 
We don't focus on what we're trying to overcome. We actually focus our thoughts of who we want to be or where we want life to go. That's why Paul writes so brilliantly in the book of Philippians. He writes these words for us. He says, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. The reality is if I'm wrestling with this monster of lust, I don't overcoming it by, I don't overcome it by, by focusing on lust itself. Instead, I start focusing on other things. I focus on love. I focus on commitment. I focus on my spouse or maybe my future spouse. I focus on God and the things of God. I divert my attention to what builds me up as opposed to what can destroy me along the way. But here's the reality. I started this conversation very intentionally by saying that this was not a conversation about guilt and shame. There is so much of this conversation that's so easy to feel shame, to feel guilt, to be overwhelmed by it at times. Particularly if this is an area that we've messed up or an area that a web got spun in our life for whatever reason. And sometimes it causes us to even really think about our value and our worth. I was thinking about this this week. Somebody help me out. What is this that I'm holding? It's not a trick question. This is a real $100 bill. It's not fake, not Monopoly money. This is the real deal, baby. Okay. Now, just out of curiosity, what is this worth? You are bright people. Uh, This is worth $100. Now, if I were to take this and I were to wad it up, if I were to spit on it, that was really gross. I shouldn't have done that. How much is this now worth? Still worth a hundred bucks. I mean, what if I were to take this and wad it up and throw it on the ground and just like stamp, step on it, trample it? How much is this now worth? Still worth a hundred dollars. For some of us, We've done things or things have been done to us. We've been stepped on, trampled, feel wadded up and spit on. And it causes us at times to feel like we're worthless. My friends, there is nothing you've done or there's nothing that's been done to you that ever changes your worth by a single ounce. You are loved, beloved by your creator. And there's nothing that you've done or nothing that's been done to you that has ever changed that reality. That you are wholeheartedly, unequivocally, unconditionally loved by your great God. That's the beauty and the grace of Jesus. This conversation is not one about shame and guilt. This conversation is not one about value and worth. This conversation recognizes that you and I have an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to take every good thing that God wants to give you in life. But Jesus says, I've come so that you may have life and have it to the full. 
And it's the truth that sets you free if we can get honest with ourselves and honest with what's going on and lean into the power of God's spirit that's actively at work in your life. My friends, we can experience God's best. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's been done to you. There is hope. There is healing. There's a fresh start. There's a new beginning. There's a creator that loves you. You are worth more than you will ever begin to fathom in the eyes of your creator. So take your hurt, your brokenness, your emptiness, and lay it at his feet. Lust is the reason that pleasure feels empty. But love has the power to make us whole again. Let's pray together. God, we come before you. God, this is a hard conversation. But it's an important one. And Father, for some of us, this is a deep, intense battle and struggle. And for those of us who are struggling... Remind us that the very fact that we're struggling means that we're not defeated. Because if we were defeated, we'd be surrendered to it. And the fact that we're struggling means that there's life, and there's hope, and there's victory that can be found in you. So God, give us the courage to bring it to the light. God, bring us people who are trustworthy, who have our best interest in mind, who love us enough to tell us the truth. But God, in it, would you help us shed the shame and guilt? Would you help us shed any notions that we are not valuable or worthy? May we find your grace, your love, your forgiveness, your hope in Jesus. We pray that in his name. Amen. We wanted the opportunity to just give you a moment with God. And so the band's going to sing one more song, and you can take whatever posture you like. If you want to stand, you can stand. If you want to remain seated, you remain seated. This is a chance for you just to do business with God, whatever that means. It's a song that you've probably never heard, but the lyrics are powerful. Just allow God's voice to wash over you as we experience this song together.